Consciousness is sometimes compared with light. An increase of consciousness is likened to an increase of light. So you've all heard that. But we shall see eventually that an increase of consciousness does not mean only that we see with greater clearness what was formerly obscure. The quality has changed. For the moment, the man who experiences it himself is changed. It's not merely the quantity of consciousness that is altered, but its very nature. I thought for a simple example of this, this morning, I get up early in the morning, 5 o'clock, well, it's early for some people, I suppose. For some people, maybe it's not so early. But for me, it's, I got up at five this morning. It was early. I mean, I was up earlier to meditate, but this was to get up for real, to be up and about and take care of business. And it was still, since it's overcast, it was still not very bright. And I was picking out a pair of socks and I had two pair, one with stripes, one with spots. And I was trying to see whether the spots were blue or black. But the light was such that I couldn't really see. So I opened the shutters and held the socks. Well, first I turned the light on. The lights are not so good. They're, they're like yellowish. And so they're not really that great. So I opened the window, the shutter, and held it out there and looked. And I still couldn't tell. So I put my glasses on and I looked and I still couldn't tell. But then I held up both of them together and one was obviously blue and the other one I really couldn't tell. The amount of light made it so that I could see more clearly, more distinctly, but the quality of the light was such that it really didn't increase the quality of my consciousness. Do you understand what I'm saying? So sometimes you can make out something better, but you still can't make it out well enough. But then if you get enough light, you can make it out more distinctly, but you can also, the quality of the light is better, or the quality of the consciousness that comes with the light is better. So that was an example for me. No matter how hard I tried, I could not distinguish whether it was black or a midnight blue. But his point is that once the quality has changed, that for that moment, while you have that light, you yourself experience a change in yourself. So there's a change in you because of the quality of the consciousness that you have, not just the amount of consciousness that you have. You may be more conscious of this thing in you. But at the same time, you become conscious of the quality of the thing in you, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or a better thing or a worse thing or a richer thing or a poorer thing. But it's only for the moment. It's not eternal. Just because you've had the flash of light doesn't mean that it's yours forever. It's like lightning flashing on a dark night when all of a sudden you can see the lawn and trees and everything and, and you can even make out for a moment the color of everything. But then it's all gone and you may be able to discern some shadow of the tree or something or but you can't see the color of the leaves or the color of the lawn or whatever. It's gone in a flash. So for the moment that you have it, it's there, but then it's gone. What evidence is there from the physiological side about levels of consciousness in man. What does neurological teaching say? In his teaching about the nervous system, Hewlings Jackson, the forerunner of English neurology, conceived it as an integrated system of nervous levels in which the higher holds the lower in check. Now, this isn't going to make a lot of sense right now. Oh, that's great. He conceived it as an integrated system of nervous levels. Well, what is that? 
Well, you know that you have your body, your physiology, you have different things going on. You have the blood going on, you have the nerves going on, you have the fluids in your body, the lymph fluids in your body moving, and you have the air in your lungs, so that's going on. So you have your circulation, you have your digestion, you have your lymph node circulation, you know, the lymph circulation, then you have the air circulation. So you have all of that going on at the same time. So in a sense, you can see these levels. Well, he's saying nervous levels. We'll see what that means. We have to understand that the nervous system is not one thing. So the nervous system, like the body, is not just one thing, although we're apt to look at it as one thing. But when we take a better look and observe with a little more consciousness, a little more light, we see that it's not one thing. It's not of one composition. It's not a uniformity. It is a structure of different groupings of nerve cells fitted together and linked up on the principle of scale. And this is very important, the principle of scale. It's so important that it's something that we rarely ever notice. It's one of those things that we take for granted, scale. And apparently presided over by the cortex of the brain. We'll say apparently rather than indefinitely because that's what it is apparently to us. It looks like it's the cortex of the brain that handles all this stuff. But maybe it is and maybe it isn't. We shall see. Which itself shows different strata or levels of nerve cells. Jackson taught that if the action of a higher level in the nervous system is weakened, the activity of a lower level is released. Let me give you an example of that. <clears throat> we'll say, for example's sake, whether it's actually true or not, I'm not ready to argue, but we'll say for example's sake that my dog, Buddy Love, is lower on the scale of being than I am. So that if he's in my presence and he's doing something that I don't want him to do and I tell him not to do it, he will stop. But if I'm not here and he decides to do it, then he does it. So the higher level, that would be me in this case, in this example, is in charge of the lower level. But if I'm absent or incapacitated or not paying attention or whatever, then the lower level becomes active because the higher level is inactive. Make sense? Okay. So clearly you can see where I'm going with this or where he's going with this. It's like if the higher in you is passive, then the lower in you becomes active and it's not that pleasant for you. Although you may think it would be very pleasant, we've found that allowing the lower in us to have its way is more often than not an unpleasant thing for us. Maybe not in the moment when we think we're getting what we want, but later when we found that we've gotten what we want and it didn't work out as well as we thought that it would. It wasn't nearly as sweet as it was, was in the moment that we were having the victory. It was later when we started to pay the price. The drunkard always feels just fine as long as he's pounded him down. But it's the next morning he wakes up and wants another drink to make the, you know, he wants a, uh, what, the, what did they call it? A, a, he wants some of the hair of the dog that bit him, yeah. He wants a little more so that he can make the whatever it is go away, the unpleasantness go away. So a lower function takes the place of a higher function. The main point he emphasized was that we could never understand the action of the nervous system, physiologically considered, unless we took into review this factor of release, because many symptoms of disordered nervous function consist in phenomena of release. As long as the master is in charge of the dog, you never find out that the dog has some nasty habit. But as soon as the master's gone and the dog then is released to his own will, 
then you find out that he has this nasty habit of going and biting people. And that's not a good thing. So it's only when the master's not around that this can be discovered. That's the point here, that many symptoms of disordered nervous function consist in phenomena of release. So when the master's gone, when the higher is gone, then the disorder shows from the lower. It's necessary to understand clearly what he meant. Okay, and so here we go. Now he'll give us some more examples, and they'll probably be much better than my lame examples. Imagine a schoolmaster in charge of a class of boys. Suppose that the schoolmaster represents a higher level, the boys a lower, and that the whole class constitutes an integrated system, which works in a certain way. If the schoolmaster goes to sleep, the lower level is released. That is, the boys begin to behave as they like. And the system now works in quite a different way. This is due not merely to the fact that the schoolmaster is asleep, which Jackson would have called a negative factor, that is, it doesn't itself give rise to any manifestations or symptoms, but rather to the release of the boys from control with resulting disorder. In other words, if a higher level of the nervous system is not working, its absence of function cannot be discerned in itself. So you won't know that the schoolmaster's asleep, except that the boys suddenly are out of control and are disorderly. It will only be released actively of the lower level that will be manifested, and this only can be studied. So the only time you can study the lower level is when the higher level is passive or asleep, and then the lower level becomes active. Then it can be studied. Otherwise, it cannot be studied. You're never going to see what the boys are really like, what the dog is really like, as long as the master is in charge of them. The function of the higher level will merely be absent, and it will be impossible to deduce its nature, because we will only be able to perceive and study the released activities of a lower level. So we'll never see really what the higher level is. We'll be able to see when it's not working that the lower level becomes active. But we won't be able to really see, well, what is it that the schoolmaster has over the boys? How does that work so that they're in control? Everything's fine now. But when he's not, then everything's not fine. So what is it that makes everything fine in the higher? We don't know. All we know is that when it's absent, there's disorder. Suppose that the schoolmaster becomes invisible when he falls asleep and that we know nothing about the proper working of a class. So we really don't know what a class is supposed to be like. And now the schoolmaster, who's keeping everything orderly, or keeping it working the way it works, is now invisible when he goes to sleep. We see only a number of boys in a state of disorder. We can deduce nothing about the proper working of the class from this disorder. It will remain unknown to us. In the absence of higher function, lower function necessarily appears. And this latter is of a different order. So the lower function is of a different order. We can see that. The higher function cannot be deduced from the lower. You'll see that the lower function is in disorder. But you will not be able to see from the lower function that there is a higher function if it's not there. The higher function cannot be deduced from the lower. If we think of the question from the standpoint of levels of consciousness, then, beneath our ordinary level exists a lower level of another order. When the level of ordinary consciousness is disturbed, Jackson observed that there is often a marked rise of dreamlike states, which he ascribed to the release of the activities of a lower level. Another quality of consciousness manifests itself, for at this level, things can be connected together in a way that is impossible at the usual level, and we are exposed to fantastic influences, nightmares, etc., which do not exist at the higher level.
when there are very remarkable contradictions in the personality, this dream state has a tendency to arise at any time and interfere with the life. Now, if you'll take for a moment someone who's mentally disturbed, we'll say. I don't know if that's politically correct, but boo-hoo. If it's not, it's not. Then that's the way that is. I really don't care. What I care about is us understanding that if there is a higher function not functioning in us, a lower function takes over and that that can cause problems because it's disorderly. And we won't be able to see in this disorderly state what it is that's needed to bring the orderly state back. You will not be able to deduce from the lower what the higher is. We have no right to believe that our ordinary level of consciousness is the highest form of consciousness or the sole mode of experience possible to man. We cannot say that the range of the internal experience of oneself is necessarily limited either to dream states or to ordinary consciousness. We have to consider the possibility not only that there is a level above our ordinary level of consciousness to which we are only occasionally awakened, but that our ordinary consciousness becomes integrated into a larger system when this happens. So you have a flash of awareness and suddenly you're in a more pleasant state. You're more understanding of other people. You're more compassionate of other people's problems. So this awareness has brought this about in you and yet it doesn't last. It's like the lightning flash. For that moment you have it but then you find yourself back in your ordinary state. Well, in that moment of our ordinary consciousness, when it, this flash of light comes, our ordinary consciousness then becomes integrated into a larger system, into the system that we now have of the new light. From this point of view, our ordinary consciousness would have to be regarded as a release phenomenon. We would have to study ourselves from the angle of being disintegrated and not integrated individuals. From the physiological standpoint, what can be said in respect to evidence is that the nervous system seems certainly far from being fully used under our ordinary conditions. We'll say, for example, that, what are they saying now, that we use 15% of our brain, it used to be 10%, and now they've upped it to 15 or 20%, which I don't believe for a nanosecond. I think it's going the other direction. But maybe they just mean that everybody's hooked into social networks and digitally hooked into their phones and their computers and everything, that they're using a different portion of the brain and they have not yet realized that while they're using that different portion of the brain, they're neglecting the portion of the brain that they used to use before they had all that nonsense with the digital stuff. But that's neither here nor there. That's just my opinion based on my observation of our declining mental capacity in our culture. I don't know about in the world, but where I've been in the world, it's been true. But this kind of evidence, clinically speaking, isn't easy to marshal. It's necessary to approach the subject from the psychological side. So physiologically, this only goes so far with us. We have to start to look at this psychologically. There's a very old idea that man can't find any integration or harmony of himself as long as he's on the level of a sensual outlook. So as long as he's looking through the senses, there's this idea, and it's been around for thousands of years, that we can't find any real harmony, any real integration inside of ourselves, as long as we're constantly looking out the windows of the five senses. As long as you're looking outside, you can't see what's going on behind you in the house. 
As a creature of sense, thinking only from sense and turned outwards towards visible life, he remains dead in regard to that which is himself. Nor is he quickened by any demonstration coming from the sensible side of the universe. So no matter how much goes on out there, as you're looking out the windows, so if you're completely faced out there, you've got this great view of everything out there, but nothing in here. And in here is your true self. Nothing out there is going to draw you into your true self. Everything out there is only going to draw you more out there and keep you more riveted to the out there, but not turn you round so that you can find something out about your true self. In the older views of man, which were much richer and more complete than are the modern views, man was placed in the framework of a vast living universe as a created being, that is, created in and out of the living universe. So not only was man in the world, but the world was also in him. Now this is a very different point of view from the point of view that is held by science today. Everything is now, according to the religion of science, everything is now discoverable and weighable and measurable. So if it's not, then it doesn't exist, according to that religion. But this older way of viewing things said, no, we were created, we have a purpose, we're part of the world, and the world is part of us. It's only recently that we have moved away from that. The idea of scale or degree of excellence permeated most of the older notions about man and the universe. The universe is on different scales, and man was taken as a very complex creation, having within him a scale consisting of different levels of mind, consciousness, and understanding. Of these levels, the sensual was taken as the lowest. Now, we have turned that completely upside down. Now the sensual is taken as the highest. Now, it doesn't really matter how well you do the job. All that matters is that you do it. And now, it doesn't really even matter that you do it. Now, all that matters is that you showed up and you pretended to try. Because you can be rewarded for not doing now. As I think I said last time, I read something in the news about they just changed how they were going to rate everyone. So they had a five-star rating system. But if you had gotten anything above a three, you were automatically rated as a five. So they were going to have a two-star rating system after that, apparently, which was anything below three was one and anything above or anything above two was five. So it was just going to be a one or a five. Of course, we don't know if that's true or not. Maybe it'll be a four. No, it won't be. It'll be, it'll have to be a one or a five. And then it was retroactive so that everybody got five. Everybody got a pay raise to five, just as if they had actually done the work of a five, even if they'd only done the work of a three. You see that we've got it completely turned around and we're making it worse and worse every single time we move in that direction. Proving to me, beyond any reasonable doubt, that the sensual is the lowest level. I'll connect the sensual with the materialistic outlook of today. The point to be noticed is that if there be potential degrees of development hidden as a scale within man, no one can rise in this scale of his own potential being unless he transcends the purely sensual or material outlook. Now, not only are we not even thinking about transcending the purely sensual or material outlook, now we're making it criminal to try and transcend that. Now we're making it a mistake. Now we're rewarding people to have the purely sensual material outlook and punishing people for having the other outlook. 
an outlook like, well, quality matters. No, quality doesn't matter. Only quantity matters. Quality is something else. Quantity is what makes quality in the material sense. What is the best gold? Well, the most gold is the best gold. The purest gold is the most gold. So that makes it the best gold. So you do see that the most gold is the best gold. The quality is based on how much there is, the quantity, in the materialistic sense. What can you do with gold? Well, that's neither here nor there. It's the quantity that matters. But what can you do with it? You see, you're moving in the direction of the internal now. You're thinking, well, what good is it? It doesn't have to be good. There's a lot of it, and it's precious, and it's wonderful, and it's worth a lot. So that's all that's important. But what can you do with it? What will it do for you? Will it make you rich? Yes, but what will that do for you? Well, you don't understand. It will make me rich, and that makes me better. And see, we do understand, don't we? Because you're starting to smile. Well, like, oh, yes, I see now. If gold really doesn't do anything for you, what good is it? But it makes you rich. Yes, but what does that do for you? Well, it makes you able to have things which are all sense-based and all materialistic. And so that means it must be better. And so you can see that we're moving in this direction at a very alarming rate of speed if you have this other point of view as well. The psychological implications behind this view are really of very great interest and importance. A sensualistic or materialistic outlook limits us psychologically. So what I would say, essentially, what I am saying essentially, is that someone who only wants to have a lot of gold is limited psychologically. Another way of saying that is it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven being this inner place where you can find your true self. Where is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is within you. Where are we looking when we're looking at the rich man? We're looking outside at the materialist, the sensualist. That's the point that he's making here. It limits us psychologically in the fullest sense of the word, so that if there be higher degrees of consciousness, we will be incapable of reaching them if we believe only in the evidence of things seen, or seek only for proof from the visible, tangible, and matter-of-fact side of things, or regard the world simply as we see it, as it appears to our five senses. So you can see already that what he's doing is making a modern-day psychological case for an ancient spiritual teaching that said the same thing, but it was rejected by people who were afraid of religion, who misunderstood the parables, or who had lost their ability to understand. Having ears they hear not, having eyes they see not, having a heart they understand not. And this is what happens when we go too far into the sensual world. We start to become dull inside. So what's the standpoint of materialism? It's not by any means so easy to define as we may think. We are materialists without knowing it. And materialism is a much deeper problem to each of us than we imagine. But in the first place, from its standpoint, we look outwards that is, through the senses, for the explanation and cause of everything. We start from phenomena as absolute truth. When you are angry, you look at something out there that made you angry. You don't look inside yourself to find out what state of consciousness, what is it in you that lacks, that allowed you to become moved by something out there that should have no power over you whatsoever, not inside. 
out there should have no power over you internally. And yet, we see that it does very much. If the weather isn't to our liking, we're a little depressed, we're a little down, we're not as... The sun comes out and says, oh, that's so much better. See, so we're moved about by that. As I said, I think last time, like rudderless ships on an ocean when there's a storm. Speaking first of ultimate issues, we seek proof of the existence of God from phenomenal life itself. If life takes on an evil aspect, we think there can be no God. When things don't go, when, oh, if there was a God, then he wouldn't let people starve. If there was a God, then people wouldn't be killing other people. People wouldn't be shooting other people. All these horrible things that are happening wouldn't be happening if there was a God. So he must be a very bad God who lets these things happen, or he's no God at all. And most people choose no God at all, which is fine. Scientifically, we seek for causes in the phenomenal world. In both cases, we're doing much the same thing. In the first case, we're looking for spirit, invisible material life. In the second case, we're looking for the principles behind phenomena in the minutest forms of matter. As materialists, we look for cause in the elementary material particle. We look for the final explanation of the mystery of life in minute physiological processes, in biochemistry, things of the like. We might compare this with looking for the causes of a house only in its minute structure, as if we could find its real cause in the elementary bricks of which it is composed, and not in the idea behind it. For, to materialists, the world must necessarily be idea-less. It can be no masterpiece of art, for where is the artist? Neither telescope nor microscope reveal his actual existence, so therefore, to the materialist, he can't really be. If the originating principle behind all manifestations is not in the phenomenal world itself, if it lies in idea working through chemistry, that is, through minute elementary particles, into visible form, we must, as materialists, ignore this factor and assume that the chemical processes belong to the world of atoms themselves and that atoms themselves establish life. This is basically where science is today. How did man come about? Well, there was this primordial slime, this pool of slime, and lightning struck it. Just haphazardly, there was a storm, and lightning struck the slime, and all of a sudden, it sparked life in the slime, and the slime began to evolve and became a living thing. And then that evolution led to us, and now here we are. We crawled out of the slime pit millions of years ago as something, and then that crawled up into something, and that turned into something, and that turned into something else, and here we are. So there you have it. That's basically the idea of... It's not Darwin's theory of evolution. Darwin's theory of evolution had more to do with natural selection, not so much it was the origin of species, not so much the origin of life. Now we've taken the origin of species and applied it to the origin of life and said, well, it just happened that way. It was all this big accident, which is pretty fantastic stuff when you think about it. But don't think about it because then you'll have so many other things to think about and your poor brain will get worn out and you'll have to take a nap. The development of the germ cell into an embryo is, from this side, merely a progressive series of chemical changes starting from the initial shock of conception, each chemical change determined by and following upon the previous one, and thus leading to the budding up of the embryo, which is pretty much what I just said. Lightning struck the slime and it started. 
And then this turned into that, and each one was built on the next until finally there it was. Here we are. Looking only at the chemical changes, we will ignore the controlling principle of the law acting behind them. Whatever we do not find in the three dimensions of space, we will ignore because we're materialists. Not seeing life as unfolding events, but rather as aggregations of physical mass. Whatever we do not find in the three dimensions of space, we have to ignore because there isn't anything else to a materialist. We'll see that the blocks are being built, put one to another, another to another, but we won't see what is making that happen. We won't see the principle behind it. We'll say, well, it's just happening because that's the way it happens. Strictly speaking, materialism gives sense and physical matter priority over mind or idea. In the 10th book of the Laws, Plato put the standpoint of materialism as it existed then, very clearly. The materialist was a person who regarded nature as self-derived. Lightning struck the slime pit accidentally. Elementary particles of dead matter somehow or other combined together to form the entire universe and all the living beings contained in it. Matter accidentally raised itself up into the most complex living forms. Matter created its laws. And mind itself resulted from these accidental combinations of inanimate matter. They say that fire and water and earth and air all exist by nature and chance. The elements are severally moved by chance and some inherent force according to certain affinities among them of hot with cold or of dry with moist, etc. After this fashion and in this manner, the whole heaven has been created as well as animals and plants, not by the action of mind, as they say, or of any god, but as I was saying, by nature and chance only. That's in Laws 889b. That's a direct quote from Plato's Laws 889b. From this standpoint, physical nature is necessarily the first cause of the generation and destruction of all things. Mind is secondary, an accidental product of physical matter. And this is why he says that apparently the cortex is in charge of all of this. Because when you look at it from the material standpoint, it is the brain that is controlling all of this. And when the brain is dead, then you're dead. It's called brain dead. Now, even though the body is alive, you're brain dead. So you no longer exist, according to the materialist. Interesting. Can we really believe that mind and intelligence accidentally came out of dead matter? Well, yes, people can. People do. But the question is, can you? Or are you one of those people who said, no, there's got to be something more? If you are, then you're one of the weirdos, and that's why you're here. If so, then in order to face the problem sincerely, we must grant to original matter, which, chemically speaking, is hydrogen, extraordinary properties, and assume that all organized beings were potentially present in the first matter of the nebular system. That is, if we believe that the universe started at some distant point in passing time. So if we're going to look at it like all of this intelligence and mind and everything came out of dead matter accidentally, then we're going to have to say that everything started at some distant point in passing time. But the customary standpoint of scientific materialism is that primary matter is dead, and the universe is dead, and nature is dead. And a dead nature can, of course, aim at nothing. It can't be teleological. Since Plato's time, science has passed far beyond the region of the unaided senses. So now we have telescopes, we have radio telescopes, we have microscopes, we have so many things that aid us now. 
It's turned matter into electricity and the world of three dimensions into a theoretical world of at least four dimensions. It's passed beyond natural, that is, sensual concepts, beyond the visualizable and matter-of-fact. Physicists today are trying to understand what we are in. What is this world field in which events happen? Does one event really cause another? What is this four-dimensional continuum called space-time? And what, for that matter, is electricity? All of these things are unknown to the scientist. They have their theories, but they don't know. And the more they discover, the more they realize they don't know. They get to the subatomic level, and they find these things that didn't exist before. Atom used to be the smallest particle, and then electrons and protons and neutrons, and now they have quarks, and now they find that a quark can be in two places at the same time, and now they're upset. They're upset because it's upset everything. Yet they still will poke holes in, well, those stupid people in the Bible didn't know that the world was round, didn't know that the world was a, a sphere. Maybe. Just because they didn't talk about it doesn't mean they didn't know it. We are in a mysterious and incomprehensible universe. And this is what the scientists have finally come to see. We're in a mysterious and incomprehensible universe. And we're trying to figure it out. And the more we find out, the more we find out we don't know. The less we knew, the more we knew. Nevertheless, psychologically speaking, the standpoint of materialism prevails and spreads its effects over the entire world. How can we better grasp what materialism consists in as regards its psychological effect? Why can it limit us psychologically? And we'll talk about that next time. Truth is everything.